Welcome to episode 411 of I Am Talk, your weekly fix in all things Iron Man. Right, guys, welcome along to episode 411 of Iron Talk with Coach John Newsom and Bevan James Isles. How you going, mate? Pretty good, and you? Feeling the effects of the chocolate egg yet? Feeling a bit wired? Yeah, so this is week two of my egg indulgence. Yeah, yeah. Because we're still in the studios from last week's show. We we're actually doing the shows back to back and Legends at the same time today. So it's all go, and John had his chocolate egg, and it looks like the cream egg's starting to kind of slowly be opened. Yeah. And we had a, we were just doing an interview before, you will have heard last week with uh, Nate from Trainer Road, yeah. and uh, we had a nice little earthquake in the middle of it, didn't we? Did you not even feel that? No. I was sitting there going, geez. Not at all. You're a moron. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Seriously, didn't feel it at all. Are you sure? Oh, absolutely positive. Have I got go, stuff right now? No, go to, what's that, Quake Crows Geo, sort of thing. Quakes, go see. Yeah. Anyway, it's a weak way to start the show, but... Uh, it was well, a bad uh, one. Sorry? Yeah. Babe, did you feel the earthquake? When? I think you're dreaming, John. Okay, it might be. Maybe you've got <laughs> weak foundations. I don't think you can do these changes to your house that you're planning on That's doing. That's right. It's, it's you, not going to happen. Your house is structurally insecure. Okay, well, I'm looking up. Okay, Christchurch Quake List. Was well, it Quake Map Week or isn't it? Yep. Okay, let me have a look. So did John have an earthquake or not? Last Quake? Or, when, or was the interview just rocking my world? Oh, no, you might be right. Wait a second. 22nd, is it 22nd today? It is. Of the 4th, 909? And it must be about 909, yeah. Yep. What level was it? Uh, it was only 2.6. Yeah, where was it centred? Uh, 11k uh, at centred. Dyer's Pass Road. There you go. Literally just up the road from here. You guys are morons. <laughs> 2.6, but there's not much of an That's earthquake. So, mate, your foundations were rocking. Oh, I tell you, I didn't even feel it. Okay, well, there you go. I'm talking proudly brought to you by... Coffeesofwhy.com. I feel the earth move. We can get your coffee. There you go. Uh, Athlinks.com. Social networking for endurance athletes. Extreme endurance. Your lactic buffer. And trainerroad.com. A cool way to measure and get better on the bike. Okay, guys, in this week's show, it's a bit of a different show because we are doing back-to-back shows because I'm away currently up in Auckland doing some work. So what we are doing is we're going to have a little bit of news, but basically today's show is really a great interview that John did with Professor Tim Noakes. Mm, it's gold, so we'll talk about that in a moment, but it's um, yeah, it's around about 55 minutes long or so. Yeah, so we'll probably get about an hour, so, hour 20 out. Mm. Okay, so first of all, news. First of all, we're, the news really isn't a lot this week, other than Ironman Australia is coming up this weekend. We have, and this is normally a pretty low-profile race these days because you've yeah, got um, Melbourne, Melbourne and what have you. And last year we had, we had a, um, a girl out here over summer uh, from was she from Taiwan, I think it was, and she won Ironman Japan last year. So she got quite a good points from Taiwan. So she got 2,000 points she's trying to figure out how she can get to Kona because she's probably what you would say as a, well, she won Ironman Japan. She's still sort of a second or third tier yeah. good girl. And there's only, you know, 35 slots. It's pretty hard to get a slot there. Yeah. So she's got to accumulate probably um, quite a few more points. And I sort of said, well, look, last year I was, I'm in Australia. I think there was only um, three girls that finished, three pros that finished. So you got pretty much guaranteed um, some yeah, pretty, pretty good points. And well, this year they've got a few more girls, but a number of them will drop out. But what I love, um, went on to the Ironman Australia website, which is now all under the sort of the Ironman.com, and they've got their pages. And there's some cool stuff in there. They do a really good job of honouring their, um, you know, age, age group, 
okay. age groupers and stuff like that. It really, the, the feeling I get from Australian listeners is this is the sort of the Australian age group champs. Um, okay. Not necessarily champs, but sort of the it's just got that it's vibe, good really good vibe about it. And it's at Port Macquarie. And what I love about tryrating.com is they get all the start lists up for us because I could not find the professional start list on the Ironman Australia one, despite it said professional start list here from April the 14th, and it's now April the 22nd, so it wasn't there. But uh, Try Rating comes to the rescue. Last year we had Luke Bell take out the race in 8.30, his first Ironman win, and Rebecca Hotchkey was uh, the females. And then good old Try Rating goes back and tells us all the winners back to 2005. Is he just retired, is he? Yeah, but he was around for ages. I know, but he won that race five times. Yeah. Or four times, four times. Four. But but he also won road. He was a good athlete in his yeah, day. Yeah, and he had some um, sort of top ten-ish in, in Kona. Yeah, he was a but, pretty solid athlete. But he was solid when I was in when I was in France, so in the late 90s, he was solid then. So he yeah, he just retired because... Just like, done his time. But geez, his time. He, he, it's, that's unfortunate, really. This is an example of how race... It, how races lose their prestige if certain other events happen. Like obviously Melbourne's now the place to be, but I'm in Australia for years. Was one of the races to go to, wasn't mm. it? Mm. You know, like um, who was it? Reed used to go to win Australia, didn't Holy he? Kuru. Yeah, bloody McCormick's won it a few times. Mm-hmm. You, you just finished, you just nailed that creamy. It was <laughs> one gulp creamy. <laughs> you didn't break it down at all. It was in and down and gone. Yeah, Chrissy Wellington went there twice. She did a nine oh three and an eight fifty seven. 8.57 on that course, pretty solid. Yeah. So um, great race, Port Macquarie. Got a tough little hill on there on the bike course. Uh, last year we had Luke Bell, Patrick Evo and Luke Whitmore take it out. Uh, course records, we see uh, Paul Ambrose has the current total course record at 8.17. Uh, swim record is uh, Adrian Camito, 44 minutes. Uh, bike Paul Ambrose has got at 4.31 and Tim Burkle's got the run at 2.47. Chrissy Wellington's got the overall women's record, unsurprisingly, 8.57, but she doesn't hold any of the individual yeah, records. interesting, isn't it? You'd think she would have had the bike. Mm. Melissa Ashton took uh, 48 minutes. Carrie Lester is 5 hours and 57 seconds, and Lisa Bentley is 3.01. They have changed the course a little bit from time to time, so maybe the year Chrissy did it, she maybe it was a slightly slower bike course. Who knows? So this is the names that, that Dawson's found for the male and female field. Mm. It doesn't seem to be a massively strong male field. You've got Luke Bell, you've got Jason Shortest, Paul Ambrose, Matty White. So, so I'd say it's stronger than usual if, yeah. all, if all those guys are racing um, because you've had Paul Ambrose who finished third at Melbourne, so he's obviously in pretty good form, but still a reasonably quick turnaround. Jason Shortest, we know, did challenge Taiwan, so I'd be surprised if he's rocking up in good shape. Luke Bell, uh, he needs to have to get some points for, for Kona. Yep. Um, but I guess a couple of the surprising ones will be Peter Robinson, who had a reasonable... How's oh, he racing? Where's he? Mm, he's oh, up to number two. Okay, yep. He had a reasonable sort of... Um, Melbourne, got eight, Melbourne. He? Yeah, but he's going to need quite a few points to actually make it to Kona. So he needs a big result. But the the, the number one seed on uh, Torsten's ranking is Denis Chevro from France, who I'm not sure how many races he's done, but he's ranked to come in first in 8.38. So we'll see if that happens. So, yeah, reasonable sort of field for, for, for this sort of race and probably a little bit better than normal. So you also think you've got Tasman Haynes who took out Wanaka? Well, the, the, big, the big news about this race is going to be Melissa Holscheidt is racing yeah. and whether or not she can – whether or not she goes out there to dominate the dojo or whether she goes out there just to tick the box. To watch she, her history? She's got no uh, Ironman history, but she just crushes everybody at 70.3 and Abu Dhabi and, and everything like that. So she's – Unbelievable, but has yet to be tested over iron distance. But she's current seventy point three 
world champion, I think. So she just needs to tick the box in terms of uh, finishing, and then she's got a Kona ticket. So she could add a whole new dynamic to Kona because she... So what's her strength? I don't know much about her, to be honest. Oh, come on, Bevan. Well, I know her name, but I know she's yeah. done well, but I don't know, I don't know her amazing much about her as an athlete. Ra- amazing runner, amazing biker. Swim still needs some work, but getting better. So she could be someone that can challenge Rinny. Probably not run quite as fast as Rinny, but pretty close. But stronger cyclist. Probably say she's quite a bit stronger on the bike, but probably weaker on the run, so she'll be having to, to ride through. So, But she's a girl who's going to, if, if, if she knows how to race this race well, she's going to be one of those names we're going to talk about in Kona. Definitely. So very interested to see how she goes. Very injury prone. Um, comes from a running background. But yeah, if she figures out the distance, she could add another real interesting Jeez, element the to Kona. isn't real good right now, isn't it, mm. Kona? You know, you got, this year at Kona, you'll have six girls rock up who we could be win. winners. Mm. Yeah. You, have, you have to say Rennie's a favourite, but yeah, but not by, no. not, not Chrissy's sort of favourite, is Rennie has to, have a, has to still have a great day to win. She has to have an amazing run to win. Yeah, yeah. So, mm. and Rennie knows how to do that, and she's a bloody legend, but at the same time, it's awesome. Women's racing is so amazing. outside of Melissa, it could be a really interesting race on the girls, so I think there's no real sort of standouts there. They've got Michelle Gailey as uh, seed number uh, is ranked number one on Torsten's rating. Lisa Morangan, Mel- Melanie Burke, uh, Hillary's down there as well, but she raced in Taiwan. Tamsin Hayes and a couple other girls as well. So I wonder how many races Hillary's done now because we Belinda hit 50 mm. just two weeks ago. So I wonder what we'll she have. Been that same neck of the woods, I would have thought. Yeah, she's done a lot over the years. Um, okay, um, and that's pretty much this week's news. <laughs> yeah. there, there any, there's not many races on at the moment. Got well, we're sure other up. things have happened, but John and I are obviously away this week. So let's talk about our first sponsor, John. Trainerroad.com. Okay, so we had the guys on the show, we had Nate on the show last week talking about what the service is all about. And John, I think it's fantastic. I'm actually not on the bike right now, but I have to admit, when I was talking to Nate last week, I was thinking, wow, it would be quite cool to set up in my garage mm-hmm. this system. So, because you can just train from home, mm-hmm. you know, you can just get down, rock out a good session in an hour or so. Definitely. And have a quality workout, you know, because one of the downfalls of cycling is the time it takes to get going and, and oh. you know. So, my workouts on the road, when I use Train Road, yeah, usually in that sort of 60 to 70 minute um, yeah. bracket, and I get some high quality stuff done up there. So, um, I'm posting what I'll do up there next uh, last week. So this we're actually recording this a week later. I should hopefully have three workouts up there, which you guys can can check out. Uh, there'll be uh, seven by two minutes twenty at 133 percent of FTP, which is should just about kill you. It certainly just about kills me. And last week uh, was the first time I actually managed to complete the set. Uh, oh, so I managed to get through six reps, um, but very, very challenging. And you have five minutes rest in between each one. Five minutes sounds like a long time, and it is. But by the time you get to that sixth rep, you just you, you feel like you want to have 10, 10 minutes rest. <laughs> So that's a real, it depends where you are in your training, but if you want something really tough, that's a the really tricky one. Then uh, we also last week should have done a 30 minutes FTP and that'll be a structured workout. So there'll be a whole sort of 75 minute session up there doing 30 minutes FTP, which is uh, going to, that's going to be a progression. I'll be working over the next uh, period leading into Kona 70.3. I'm going to do 30 minutes FTP, 45 minutes FTP, and then I'm going to try to do an hour at FTP, which is basically a one hour time trial which is going to be rather challenging and I also should have done a 20 minute time trial that I'm planning on doing on Saturday so I'll be posting all my workouts up there and everybody else who joins up to the team uh, their workouts will show there and there's just hundreds and hundreds of workouts you can pick and choose from but as we sort of discussed with Nate last week you know picking and choosing workouts willy-nilly is going to create that uh, 
going to make the sessions interesting, but if you really want to have a some structure and some purpose to what you're doing, then they've got those plans on there. So they've got like, say you want to improve your yeah, FTP, cool. you can go, right, sign up to that 40k Over time six trial. weeks, you're going to do a program that's designed to actually create that for you. So, mm. And the good thing is, as John's saying, is that you, it, it does it for you. You guys just ride. Mm. Yeah. It's great. Yeah, so, so check it out, trainerroad.com, and make sure you join up to the IM Talk team. And again, the price is ridiculously cheap, 10 bucks a month, guys, or you can go for the yearly option. So you you know, you for about two dollars fifty a week mm. for a service like this is pretty great. So check it out. Trainerroad.com. Okay guys, we're gonna get straight into our interview with Tim Noakes and um John, I was away, unfortunately. I couldn't actually be there for the interview, but John did a great job. It's a really good interview. And uh, probably the most impressive thing that I found from the interview, John, is that you are the fastest person in the world to do one walk strategy. <laughs> he can't talk to too many people about it. Um, <laughs> but you were loving that moment. I was. So, yeah, Tim Noakes, if you haven't heard of him, professor from uh, in South Africa. If you haven't South heard him, up. Yeah. <laughs> Author of Law of Running, Waterlogged, Challenging Beliefs, and really one of the guys who's shaken up the endurance sports world on a number of occasions on several different topics uh, so I thoroughly I say this during the interview but really recommend his Challenging Beliefs book it's um, quite quite interesting stuff yeah no, and, and just a guy who has uh, a body of work that's pretty fascinating so here he is Tim Noakes Okay, we're very pleased to have on the show today um, Professor Tim Noakes, author of the legendary Law of Running, um, Waterlogged, and more recently a book that I read not too long ago called Challenging Beliefs, which was a thoroughly good read and I'd recommend to anybody. And he's probably sitting in his chair in South Africa, still basking in the glory of his cricket team beating our New Zealand 2020 team in the World (laughs) Cup a couple of days ago. So welcome along to the show, Tim. Thanks, John. Lovely to be with you. Um, uh, before we roll into things, I'm just going to make a couple of assumptions because you've done a lot of uh, interviews and on a paleo diet, on high fat, low carbs. So, what? And we've also discussed on the show as well a little bit around central governor, and we're going to go into all those things. But I want to, we, we, just as a for for the guys listening, we're just going to assume that a you have heard of the central governor, and b you know what high fat, low carb is, and uh, and you know what the paleo diet is. So as we go through, we, we're going going to try to um, take it sort of to the next level and keep it uh, a bit more Ironman specific. So so Tim, I was really keen to start on, on um, I know your, your current topic of, uh, of fancy is, is um, a paleo and high fat, low carb stuff, but I was really keen to talk a bit about running first, because first and foremost, your law of running book really uh, shot you to prominence in, in most of the athletic world. Um, a couple of interviews I've heard you say, you talk with, uh, you've said throw out the section about nutrition and about hydration out of the book. Um, is there anything else that needs to be thrown out at this stage or have you modified things significantly? Thanks, John. You know, I have to sit down and write, rewrite the book and make a new edition and I just haven't got the energy at the moment because I think it's a massive task. Mm. The reality is actually the nutrition section isn't so bad because if you read it carefully, it definitely starts introducing the concept that maybe carbohydrates aren't such a good thing after all and maybe overloading on carbohydrates is unnecessary. And I actually went back and I I gave a lecture in 1996 in the United States of America to a very large audience and there one of the five fallacies in the sports sciences which I discussed was a high carbohydrate diet and training. And I said there was no evidence that you trained better on a high-carbohydrate diet. And so, in a sense, I was already leading in that direction. 
The problem is I didn't have a balance. The law of running does not have balance mm. in terms of the alternate, that a higher fat diet should be considered. And, and the problem was we did a lot of studies in the 80s and 90s of high-fat diets, but we only did a week's the, the intervention would only last a week. Mm. And it's clear to me that if you are going to benefit from a high-fat diet, you really need to be on it for maybe up to six months or even longer. And no one has really studied that in detail. Mm. So I think I've perhaps overstated the, the badness of law of running and its <laughs> nutritionist. <laughs> I think it's actually not too bad, but it just lacks balance. And if I were to add a section on high-fat diets – who benefits, it's clearly those people who are insulin resistant and who put on weight very easily. Those are the people who benefit hugely from the start because they can't metabolize carbohydrate. And when they eat lots of carbohydrate, their performance is going to be impaired and they're going to put on weight. Mm. So I think that's the one proviso. The second one was when I wrote this edition of Law of Running, it came out in 2002 and at that time, the central governor model really wasn't accepted by the scientists. And there were many who were very angry that I even mentioned it because it wasn't a proven concept. So I was I tried, tried very lightly in what I wrote about the central governor. And I think today one could write a whole, much, a whole lot more with, with reasonable claims that the idea is pretty much mainstream now. Yeah. So those would be two of the big changes that I will make when I sit down and rewrite the book. What about in terms of you know general running physiology and the biomechanics of running? You know, have there been any advances in that area, or are you still pretty comfortable with what what you've got in the book with that regards? No, I think you're right. I think biomechanics is really important, and I think what has happened in the last ten years is that people have suddenly realised that running on the front of the foot seems to be quite a good idea <laughs> mm. because I can remember in the 70s, Bill Rogers came along and was a pretty good runner in the early 70s and he was running on the front of the foot and I think he was unique I'd, because remember the Kenyans and the Ethiopians hadn't really come to prominence then and so all the European runners were running on the heel first because we had these very soft shoes which cushioned the heel so you could do heel strike. Mm. And he came along, and I remember telling people, oh, well, he'll never last because he'll get Achilles tendonitis. Mm. And he didn't. He's still running today, as far as I know, <laughs> quite mm. comfortably or successfully. So that was clearly wrong. And then the Kenyans came along, and we noticed that they they run, they run, seem to run differently. That's my impression. They they hardly touch the ground so that they their foot is on the ground for such a short time. And that is the key to successful running. Although we talk about oxygen consumption and all that and VO2 max, that's a byproduct of having very powerful muscles that can propel you through the air, these huge distances that these guys do. And so the, the key, in my view, for, for running performance is having muscles that are powerful enough that within a few milliseconds they can generate this enormous amount of force that allows you to explode off the ground. And that's the key to the great runners. Mm. And as you get tired, you lose that explosiveness and you slow down and you stop bouncing along. So I think that the, the key in running is, is in biomechanics and that the cardiovascular system is terribly important, but it's there to do other things. It's to there to transport heat away from the muscles and it's there to oxygenate the brain. And interestingly, we're currently looking at some really, really good Kenyan runners who we've flown to Cape Town. I think we've had now about 15 
they're not the world's best, but they're not far off them. And I think they're probably the best group of runners that have ever been studied. And we're doing their biomechanics in great detail. And we're also looking at the oxygenation of the brain because that's what we're beginning to think, that if you don't oxygenate your brain adequately, that will cause you to slow down. And the Kenyan's ability to to keep going very fast near the end of the race and to, to still have this explosive force in their limbs may well be that they just oxygenate their brains much better. Hmm. And it may be that altitude training, that's its main effect, is it, it conditions you to running at a slightly lower oxygen tension in the brain. Hmm. And so when you get to sea, sea level, it's just amazing because there's so much oxygen in the brain, can't believe it and allows you to run so much faster. So what about, we've had the, we've had the barefoot phenomenon um, sort of roll, roll through over the last few years, especially after that book, what was, I can't even remember the name off the top of my yep. head, Born to, Born to Run, Born to Run. Born to run um, and, and so, you know, what's your advice around that, given that we're not, we don't have the, the body composition of, of Kenyans, and you talked about, you know, four foot running there. If we've been heel strikers yep. all our lives and we've been wearing these big clunky ch- shoes, um, you know, we're getting people coming out now saying that people making those transition to barefoot running to wearing five fingers and things like that are having all sorts of challenges. So, you know, is, is there some sort of in-between we should be pitching for or is it an adaptation oh. period? I think definitely there's both there's an adaptation and there's something in between. And my great friend who started the first running shop in Cape Town, on my advice in about 1979, it's looking very strong. And I always get the latest from him, and he says the barefoot running or the minimalist is dead. He said you can't sell a shoe mm. in Cape Town on those. You can't sell Vibram anymore. Mm. So I think the athletes have tried it and they've made their decision. And it's either because they get injured or they're just don't enjoy it. Mm. So I, my own running, I've gone from very, very cushioned shoes to, to shoes which have a much less cushioning and running on the forefoot. Mm. And I think that that's the way to go. And the injuries actually went down in my case. I always used to get muscle injuries. And once I adapted it, but it took me two years to adapt. Mm. So my personal experience and my personal opinion is that, yes, there's a long adaptation period if you haven't run forefoot first. And there's a two-year adaptation period. And then I think that there are huge benefits. I think you do run better. Mm. And you're probably at lower risk of injury as a consequence. So if I can just rewind slightly before you you were sort of saying about um, low low impact to low um, mm. contact time with with your foot on the ground. If we try to put an, an Ironman spin on that, um, you know we see the way that the Kenyans run and it's just mind boggling. Um, but then you know a lot of the people listening to the show are going to be athletes that are out there in an Ironman run or an ultra distance race you know they've already done a big bike ride and a swim and they're going to be taking between four and say probably average between four and five hours to do a marathon Um, so for those people is it more about trying to again maybe be biomechanically efficient or they want to try to mimic their running on Kenyans in their training or more maybe like the I know I always think of the the little Japanese runners who have a very very high turnover Um, I guess it all comes back to having short impact time on the ground but in terms of modifying their technique have have you had any thoughts on that for you know ultra athletes and Ironman athletes not really uh, once you're running that slowly, I'm not sure that that you the biomechanics are as important. Mm. 
what I would say, yeah, and this is kind of contentious, but once you're going slower than, and you're only four-hour marathons, you have to walk, mm. and you have to walk regularly, and that's a change that I would suggest. Mm. It, that, uh, there, my friend Tom Osler really started this many long time ago, also in the 1970s. He found that if you could run 25 miles or, or 42 k's, if you ran and walked, you could double the distance, but you had to start walking early. And I think that that's grossly underutilized. And certainly when I was less fit a few years ago before I changed to my diet and got healthy again, I was walking in marathons and it was the only way I could get through. So I would walk regularly. And the recovery is astonishing. And I think that's a biomechanical thing that if you walk for, say, a kilometer every five or nine kilometers, you recover dramatically, and the next five or nine kilometers, you start again as if you're quite fresh. And I would think that certainly if you're doing a six-hour Ironman marathon, you really need to walk one kilometer every five kilometers, and you'll bring your time down to four, four and a half, five hours. Mm. There'll be a dramatic reduction in performance. So that's just a little bit of a spin. But let's talk about the guys who are running two and a half hours. Mm. I think, you know, I suspect, well, I watch some of the, the, the elite Ironmen and they, they, their turnover is great. They look biomechanically great. Mm. So, so I think they probably are running more like the Kenyans would be running. You'll be happy to know that the run-walk strategy is a favorite on our show. We had a question in from Dave, David Yates actually asking about your opinion on that, and you've already answered it. And I, I ran a uh, 2.30, what did I run, 2.38 marathon uh, doing a, a, a walk every three kilometers for 45 seconds and, and found very similar things to yourself. Yeah, that's amazing because that's the, that's the fastest marathon I've ever heard run on this technique. Yeah, so yeah, that, yeah it's been – I wouldn't have predicted it it would work. Yeah, no, and, and exactly as you said, you know, every three kilometers yeah. I would get a, a mini recovery and uh, and then I'd just go again and uh, and it worked well. And, and from my own experiences, you know, using a, a nine minute on, one minute off uh, protocol and, yeah. and, and, and yeah. training has, has had massive reduction in, in injuries for a lot of the athletes that I coach. So uh, it seems to be working well. That's a great, and, and also during training, that was the other component that people spoke about, mm. doing more walking in long distance. When you're doing your long distances, you do more walking mm. Mm. in training, and that also helps recovery. And so what but about… thank you for saying it. What about in terms of the fitness for, say, an Ironman athlete or, again, somebody who's training for these ultra races, you know? In your opinion, do you think they need to be doing any higher-intensity training in terms of, you know, trying to shift their either their aerobic or their anaerobic thresholds out? Um, or are they better just to be focusing just on becoming as efficient as they can be at their, their race their race speed? Let's assume they don't do anything mm -hmm. other than Ironman and they're out there for whatever, four to six hours or let's say four to five hours. Um, are they better off just being efficient or will high-intensity training actually help them become uh, a faster runner? Yeah, I think you do have to still include intensive training, even if you're doing these very long distances. Mm. And I learned that from, from some of the great endurance runners in South Africa, that even though they were training for a 90-kilometer race, which lasts five and a half hours, they all included high-intensity training towards the end, specifically in the last month or last six to eight weeks. They would do quite a lot of intensive 5K, 8K training mm. intervals. 
And there is no question that there is a sharpening component. Mm-hmm. And that allows you, when you're on race day, the it, it's much easier because you're used to running much faster or cycling much faster. So, no, I think you do have to have the intensive training as well as all the endurance training. Mm. Well, if we move on to um, Waterlogged a little bit, I haven't actually read the Waterlogged book, but I've read the Waterlogged chapter in your um, Challenging Belief book. book, And it's it's fair to say you're probably not going to be going out and buying any shares in Gatorade anytime soon yourself, <laughs> and they're probably not going to be issuing any to you at a, at a discount rate. Um, we've had a couple of other guys on our show talking about hydration as well and you've still very much of the belief that um, in terms of hydration and training and and racing it's very much now drinking to to thirst rather than drinking any pre-prescribed amount of fluids per hour yeah absolutely you know that was the way people have been racing for the last hundred years until Gatorade came along and wanted to sell more products, that's when it changed, and that's what I described in Waterlogged. And then all of a sudden, we were told that you had to drink to stay ahead of thirst. But there's absolutely no scientific evidence for that, and there's plenty of evidence now accumulating that if you drink to thirst, you optimize performance. And it makes sense. Mm. You know, all creatures on Earth, we don't tell them what to drink. They just drink when they are thirsty. And I think that that's a biological control that we have, and we should respect it. Mm. And if you're drinking ahead of thirst, it, I don't understand why you want to do that. There is one study that just comes to mind where they found that people who drank ahead of thirst got edema of their legs. In other words, they got water logging of their legs. Like they looked at it very, very carefully. And so that you were carrying this extra weight in your legs, which you didn't need to do if you hadn't drank ahead of thirst. And I've also, sorry, there's another paper which I've just reviewed of the 160K or 100-mile race in America where they find that people now have definitely changed and there was no difference on performance or anything between groups who were e-drinking differently. Mm. And the best runners were the ones, as always, who, who drank the least and became the most dehydrated. And that, that's kind of a consistent finding mm. uh, across the studies. So I think it's a very individual thing, and you best to drink to thirst and see what happens. I've never heard anyone, no one's ever written to me and said, you know, I drank ahead of thirst and my performance went up. They've always written and said the opposite. Yeah. When I started drinking less, my performance had gone up. And and what about the whole cramping issue? I know that's still very... Um yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one to stay on top of. But for us Ironman athletes, you know, when we're six hours into a race and we're on the run and we're cramping, we've had um, Paul Larson, who's a sports physiologist over here, you know, come on the show and saying that the the um, you know taking sports drinks is is a bit of a waste of time. Yes, you get some carbohydrates out of them, but you you never you're not the amount of uh, sodium or um, electrolytes in mm. there does absolutely nothing to you. So. Is there any new research to, to try to figure out what the relationship between cramp and electrolytes is on the run, and, or is it just a load of uh, rubbish and it's, yeah. and it's just muscle fatigue? I think you're right. I think it's muscle fatigue. I go to this in, in great depth in Waterlogged. Mm. And my colleague, Professor Martin Schwellness, is one of the first people to say it's actually a neural reflex that's the problem that as the muscle gets tired, it loses the inhibition, and so it becomes more and more twitchy, as it were, and is much more likely to go into spasm, which in a sense is what a cramp is. So there are well-defined neural pathways that could explain cramping. And his point is that there's no study ever done, and we've done quite a few studies with him, 
showing that electrolytes or dehydration contribute to cramping. And in fact, there are clinical trials. Someone worked out a model of producing cramping in the laboratory, which was unusual, and he showed fluids and salt made no difference to the outcome. You, you were still going to cramp whether you were drinking or not drinking. So my point is, I think you're absolutely right. It's, it's, a, it's a fatigue phenomenon. What Dr. Schwellness has also shown is that it might also be an injury phenomenon. In other words, you might be harboring a minor injury in those muscles. You might have a chronic muscle tear of which you're unaware, and you may then cramp to protect that problem. And certainly in my own experiences more recently, when I'm perhaps not quite as fit, when I've raced hard and I can develop muscle tears the next day after the race and I can barely run the next day, Mm. And I think what's happening now, the muscle is is just saying, no, you really damaged me and I'm not going to allow you to run. So our understanding of, of muscle physiology is is way from complete. And what also I'll just add here, what we used to think were muscle tears, I don't think they're actually tears in the substance of the muscle. It looks like it's the connective tissue that seems to be involved because there are no pain receptors. Also, you know, cramps are sore. Yeah. But there are no pain receptors in muscle. They lie in overlying the muscle in the fascias. And it seems to me that there's a whole physiology going on there about which we don't know anything. Mm. And I suspect that that may well play a role. And that could be a protective role. So cramping could well be a protective role to protect the muscle from damage when it's become fatigued. What what about it must be frustrating. What is your response to people who are in a race? Uh, say they're in an Ironman, they're going through the the run, uh, they start cramping. Uh, they go for some salt salt tablets, or they go for something very very salty, and then their cramps uh, miraculously manage to disappear. So how do we figure that one out? That that's great because in fact that has been done. A clinical trial has been done of that because in the American football, this <laughs> this is a problem in the National Football League because people started using pickle juice, I think it was. Yeah. So someone discovered that pickle juice reduced cramps. And pickle juice has got much more salt than Gatorade, and Gatorade is the funder of the National Football League. So all of a sudden you had trainers in the National Football League telling their athletes to take pickle juice if they got cramps, not Gatorade. And that caused a lot of problems. But the people then went and researched pickle juice, and they absolutely showed that if you put salt on your tongue, your cramps disappear more quickly than if you don't. Mm. But it's not because the salt's been absorbed into the bloodstream. It's because it's acting by a neural or brain mechanism. Mm. And that fits with the idea that cramps are a neural reflex in the muscle, in the nervous system and the muscle. And somehow, if you put salt on your tongue, that confuses the the, the reflex and makes it disappear. So, so yes, you're absolutely right. The treatment for a cramp may well be taking salt, but it's not the prevention. Mm-hmm. If you see what I mean. Yep. Yep. Uh, so, um, another one you, you talked about, and, and I've seen it a number of times. You know, a very strong correlation between almost the more dehydrated you get in a race, you actually perform better. Um, but I was wondering what how that um, impacts on your recovery. So let's say you're doing a very hard training session and it's not necessarily a race and you get into a dehydrated state. Um, is there much of an impact on your recovery and, and, and how should you actually go about trying to recover from, say, a really key session where you do get dehydrated? 
I think again, you know, if you are really dehydrated, the sign is is uh, thirst, mm. and that's the key. If you're thirsty, then you then you're dehydrated, and then you must drink. But if you're not thirsty, I understand that if you're really exhausted, thirst might be impaired for a couple of hours. Mm. But I think again, you just respond to uh, and interpret. If you did get really thirsty, why didn't you drink a little bit more during the race or during the training session? Mm-hmm. That would be the question. So I, my point is that this human animal is the biology is unbelievably complex, and the best way to look after it is to listen to the body and what it tells you. Mm-hmm. And if it tells you you're thirsty, you have to analyze why did you get so thirsty, and could you have made it less if you had drunk more, for example? And then you have to look at well, how do you recover? Did you recover worse after that session? And maybe it wasn't wasn't such a good idea. Either the session's too hard or you didn't manage yourself properly. Mm. Okay, that's awesome. I love that waterlogged stuff. It's brilliant, and especially around the cramping because that's an issue a lot of us uh, battle with and also around all the sports drinks and, and how we sort of fuel ourselves through the day. We're just quickly cutting out of the interview to have a sponsor. John, who do you want to talk about? Well, I'm in Australia is coming up this weekend, as Woo-hoo. we discussed in the intro, and on athlinks.com, what I love about it is it's got results for Africa. Results for, for Africa, Africa and Australia. But what you can basically do is just type in Ironman Australia and then it's going to bring up all the year's results. If you wow. go to the ironman.com website, I'm not, I haven't actually been, but they often just have the most recent ones. But this goes back to all the way when it had, had it at Port Macquarie. It goes back to 1985. They've got their results there. So it's um, it's just a cool way of going back and seeing some of those legends. So 1985, uh, Grant Boswell took it out from Mark Dragon. He was a bit of a legend, and so was Stephen Foster, who was in third place. And then we had Aaron Baker finishing in eighth place overall. Well, what's cool, John, is you go into Athlinks and you, you, you pull up I'm in Australia and you, and you go, you've got all these different years, and then what you can do is you add, you look at the stats page and it's got all these cool stats to it. You can see how many participants. So if we go early days, back in 1985, they had 105 people. Mm. And then it went to like 165. And it's just it's, it's actually interesting. There's kind of been this gradual progression there. There's never really been a year where it's really spiked. And then they had a couple of years where it dropped away. And that was obviously when Melbourne came around. Um, and then it picked up again. So it's just, you know, you look at the average times, the average time for Australia is 12, 12, 12.20, sorry, for men, and mm-hmm. 13.03 for females. It's actually pretty close mm. for an average. Mm. Hey. Mm. Um, overall average time is 12.27. So, you know, just, yeah, it's just kind of a cool way to geek out on the, on the site. So, athletes.com. Yeah. yeah, we have that. And if you, if you did that 1985 race... If you go on there and claim your result, you will be the top athletes finisher. <laughs> there you go. Because in 1985, we haven't got any athletes finishers. If we go and look at uh, 2013, let's give a little bit Nick of love. Nick Burt. Nick Burt. He was age 40. He got 55.27. He did a, a 127 swim. He did a, geez, he had a pretty slow swim, a 5.16 bike, but then a 3.11 run. So he did 9.27. No, that, was, that, that was his uh, transition. Oh, was sorry. His pace. <laughs> no, that was his transition. 55 swim, 5.16 oh, bike, 3.11. He's going, Bevan, you got it wrong. I went way faster than that. And he finished uh, 11th overall. Well done. That's impressive. Solid performance. And who do we have on the girls' side of things? <sighs> you do that, John. Okay, I'm doing it. Uh, Rona McLean did 11.23. But as we even said, it goes through, geez, um, females, you know, it, really, it really shows you how many males versus females. In the 40 to 44 age group, 302 males, the girls 40. 
Really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. And then it's pretty similar in all the age groups, uh, 35 to 39, 188 men versus 48 women. Wow. Goodness. I bet the girls don't get many cone slots at that race because it's always done pro rata. I'd imagine most of these age groups will be one or two for the girls. Yeah, wow. Okay, so that's Athletics. And that's what you can Google do, guys. You go to athletics.com, sign up, put all your details in. It's a great way to store your results over time, but also just a great way to geek out on races you're either looking at or that you are doing. So athletics.com. Let's go back to Tim Noakes. Um, one of your hot topics I know is the central governor and I've got a good uh, story for you because I did Ironman New Zealand uh, it must have been two or three weeks ago and I was coming into the, I, I do about no, just over nine hours for an Ironman yeah. I was coming into the, towards the finish had about 200 metres to go maybe maybe 300 metres to go turned around and there was somebody coming up behind me who I did not want to beat me and I was uh, already what I thought um, pretty much on the limit, um, but then we managed to have a full noise, all-out sprint finish at the end of a you know nine-hour, fifteen-nine man. Uh, and I like to think that I'm pretty good at pushing myself to the to, to the limit in races, and and I thought I was at my limit. So. Um, yeah, that's one part. I'll have another another story in a moment. So one of our listeners, Gary Fegan, asked if uh, you know if your thoughts on the central governor have have changed at all since um, since you came out with challenging beliefs. There seems to be you know different theories yeah. coming out. You know, motiv- motivational tens- motivational intensity theory and, and other thoughts on what might be slowing you down. So have have, have your thoughts changed much on that um, you know, in recent times? No, I think the the, gen, the central governor is a, is an all inclusive. The problem with the central governor model is it's all inclusive, and it's very difficult to disprove something that's all inclusive. So the motivational model is is part of the central governor model because clearly motivation is crucial, and uh, you you can't drive the legs if you aren't if your mind is not right and if you aren't rested and so on. So, so I don't, I think the the weakness of the motivational model is to say that it's all conscious thought. That's not true. I mean, it, clearly there's feedback from the periphery, from the body, which also influences how hard you can go. And you can't ignore that. So there is conscious control, but there's also subconscious control. And in my view, the subconscious control is the, the major regulator because that's what's going to really get, keep you safe. But the motivational component, as you had, you made a conscious decision to go harder. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, that's, that fits the model as well. And in fact, it's really interesting because we have a, a doctor from Germany who was an elite triathlete. And he's come to look at the conscious controls of, of fatigue. Mm-hmm. And, and what can you do about thinking and doing better as a consequence of thinking appropriately? Or being misled about your performance and how does that influence your performance? And he said his best performance, he came second in a major Ironman. He said the last 10Ks of the run, he did not feel at all tired. He just had an amazing run. And then he realized that fatigue was an emotion that is made up by your brain. And that there are some days when for some inexplicable reason, it just didn't happen. He didn't feel tired. Mm. And so that has inspired him to do his PhD studying the conscious controls. And so the, I think where I would have changed the central government, I think we began absolutely as physiologists. It's all about feedback from the heart, the lungs, the muscles, the glycogen, the heat, etc., the oxygen. It's all feedback. And we forgot motivation. Hmm. And Dr. Mokara came along and said, oh, that you can't forget motivation. And he's absolutely correct. 
but it motivation is is a part of it. it it's it's a it's the complete package you can't say it's just all feedback or no feedback and it's all conscious or all subconscious it's incredibly con- it's incredibly complex as your experience showed mm. so um you know, in a, in a practical sense, um, if people have got an understanding of what the central governor is about, you know, what can they do about um, trying to actually improve their, you know, improve their central governor so they can push to a to a higher place next time they go out and race? My opinion is that all of training is adapting the central governor to to allow you to believe you can do something that was not considered possible before. And that's the key in training. And that's what the great coaches do is that they they make you believe it's possible to do something that you didn't think you could do before. And and I work now a lot with teams, and it's astonishing how you can make a team perform better by making them absolutely believe it's their destiny to be successful. And believe it or not, the book I'm reading at the moment is about the All Blacks. Oh, nice. And their approach. <laughs> <laughs> most successful sports team in history. I'm not sure they're better than Manchester, you know, their records are better than Manchester United, but they have an astonishing record. And this is a book of how to turn around in 2003 by Graham Henry. And all the things that I'd implicitly sort of begun to believe were there. And, and the key one is it's, it talks about the destiny and the all-black jersey. You must leave the all-black jersey in a better place than when you started with it. And that there's something much more important than just playing rugby. It's it's much more than that. Mm. And now take it to an individual sport. That's what you have to convince yourself. That it's not just about finishing the Ironman. It's, it's making you a better person. And that you're going to contribute to the world in a better way if you do eight hours in the Ironman than if you do nine hours. Mm. I, I mean, that's, that's what we tell our teams. Mm. It's not about the rugby. It's about other things. It's about being better human beings. Now, how you convert that into an individual sport, I don't know. I think it's easy if you're competing in the Olympics because if you win the Olympic gold medal, it has a huge impact on how your country sees itself. And so then the goal becomes different from you. But as they say in the All Blacks, they say the goal has to be more than you or the team. It has to have social significance. And the more social significance the event has, the better you will do. And perhaps what I'm saying is that if you believe that the New Zealand Ironman is the most important thing you've ever done in your life, and you trained for it accordingly, and you see that it has some other goal role in your life, just more than just finishing in nine hours, then you'll do better. And there's a famous Nietzsche statement which comes out in the book and I've used it with all the teams I ever speak to. He who understands the why will accept any how. You have to understand the why you're doing this. Why do you get up every day and cycle for four hours and run for two hours and swim for an hour? Not every day, but most days. Why do you do it? Because once you question that, if you don't understand the why, you won't do it. Mm -hmm. And so it's all about the why. And the more important the why is, the faster you will cycle and run in the Ironman. And uh, what about in terms of, you know, going and smashing yourself in training to try to sort of shift your pain threshold, um, you know, out further? Is, is that, a, again, a different part of it? You know, we've got that 
what you've just been talking about, but then on the, the training yeah. front, can you make yourself, you know, more more battle hardened? Is there particular things you can do or are people better off to sort of try to understand that why a bit more and focus your energies on that? That's a great question. Because what it addresses is where does the pain come from? Because mm. you said train harder, get more pain. The pain is you generate the pain in your own brain. It's not as if someone else is there causing your brain to cause the pain. You generate the pain. And that is, that is one of the key points about the, the central governor model. That that pain is unique to you and your understanding of perhaps at a subconscious or a conscious level of what you are doing. It's absolutely unique to you. And in my view, the best athletes have less pain, not more pain. Mm. And that's, that's a very important point because you don't perform better by having more pain. You perform better by going faster with less pain. And so I have this lecture where I show Mark Allen and Dave Scott racing the 1989 Ironman where they race together for eight hours. And then in the last three miles, Mark Allen runs away from Dave Scott. And the point comes where where it happens, it happens at the last seconding station. Hmm. And Dave Scott drifts off a bit, about a, a, a two meters behind Alan. And then Alan says, my brain said to me, this is the moment you must go. And he said, it was, I was like I was shot out of a cannon. And he shoots away. And Dave Scott says, every pace he took, uh, Alan gained six inches on me. And then he said, he suddenly started questioning, could he do it or not? And then he decided he couldn't. And then the pain got worse. And that's what happens. Mm. So in my view, the pain is there as an excuse, in a sense. It's an excuse to explain why you quit. The mm. pain goes up. You see, I couldn't have done any gone any harder. But I don't think so. I think the elite athletes, the ones who win, they don't accept that. And they don't accept quitting. Mm. And their pain doesn't go up because they don't quit. <laughs> so... So that's the paradox. Oh. So again, the question is, you're quite right. You have to train harder to give yourself the belief that you can do it. Because you never do an Ironman in training. You can't do it in training. Mm. So what gives you the belief that you can go an hour faster in a race than you could ever do in training? Mm. And that's, it's all speculative. It's all you just have to believe. That if I can do 10 hours in training, I can do nine hours in the race. Yeah. Much like Roger Bannister, when he broke the four-minute mile, he said, if I can do 10 times 400 meters each in a minute with a small short break between the fifth and the sixth, I will run a four-minute mile. And that's how I did it. That was his belief. So in a sense, in training, that's what you do. You say, okay, if I can run 30 Ks off the bike, in training and do it in such and such a time, then I can do the marathon in two and a half hours. Mm, mm. And, and those are the sort of decisions you make, in my view. Oh, well, I'm going to be putting that into practice in Kona later this year. <laughs> Sponsor. If you want to show off that you... Always want to show off. Yeah, that you know quality products, you can get yourself... From Coffees of Hawaii, their French Bowden Press. Not only can you serve up a bit of uh, Coffees of Hawaii coffee, but then people will be looking at their little um, press there and they'll be admiring it as the coffee filters in, oozes oozes in, and uh, and it's got the nice Coffees of Hawaii logo. A simple design and process for a sophisticated 
taste. We all want to be sophisticated. You can go and, you can even go and watch a video, John. Go oh, to the website, yes. coffeesofhawaii.com. You go to youtube.com. It takes you to the new French press, coffee. Look at that. It's coming up here. Oh, look at this. You've got, you got to make sure that you let it leave it there for long enough. It's telling you how to use it properly. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, I won't get counting that too much on the show here, but yeah, you, yeah. If you want to, yeah. So what you can do is it's one of those things where you wake up in the morning, yeah, get out of bed. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you look pretty morning ugly as we all do. Go into the yep. kitchen, put your percolated coffee on, yep. have your shower, come yep. out. Yeah, house smells like coffee. I don't know if percolated's the right word there. Is it not? No, French press then. French press. What's percolated? What's the difference? Because that looks like a percolator, doesn't it? No, it's not percolator. Oh, okay. It's, it's French press. Okay, French press coffee then. So you just let it sit there and you come out plunger, of your shower. Plunger. Plunger, that's what I'm thinking. Mm. So that's a plunger there. That is a plunger. So French press is a plunger. Yes. Oh, okay. So you, you get your plunger coffee, go have a shower, jump into a shower, the house smells like coffee, mm-hmm. and you're just drawn to your coffee. So if it's Hawaii smell, makes you think you're in Hawaii. <sighs> check, check, check it check out, guys. Coffeesofhawaii.com. And when you go to Hawaii, if you haven't entered, already gone and got one of our ebooks you'll be able to sum out the coffees of Hawaii and you'll be able to get another variety with their iced coffees Maybe, yeah that's right we'll get some Hilo coffee Goodness, so check, check it out guys coffees of Hawaii make sure you support them they support us and they love what you guys do here we go let's go back to Tim for the last part of his interview um, obviously one of your real favourite topics at the moment is, is high fat low carb and you've already sort of alluded to that um, uh, earlier on um, one thing you did sort of point out that there's, there's, uh, how much research out there is there in the sort of athletic world that um, high fat, low carb is going to enhance your performance, or do you very much come at this topic more as a, a general well-being um, rather than you know, necessarily trying to enhance athletic performance through diet modification? I think that's a great point. That, that's the second point you raised, and and what worries me is that. If, like me, you're insulin resistant or pre-diabetic, I'm frankly diabetic, so I'm different, but, mm. but I have no doubt in my mind that I had a family history of diabetes and then I ate a very high carbohydrate diet because that was a thing we were told to do and that's what I told people to do. And there's no question that induced my diabetes. And I'm worried that many athletes like myself with a family history of diabetes, if your father or your mother had diabetes, you better be careful because the probability that you person will get diabetes is very, very high. It's something like tenfold increased. Now, you do not have to get diabetes if you don't eat high-carbohydrate meals all your life for 40 years or so. You will not get diabetes. So I think that that's a very important point. I, 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 you know, I look at Sir, uh, the, the great Steve Redgrave, the great Orson, the British Orson, also diabetic, and I'll bet that he had a family history and also ate a lot of carbohydrates. And I just wonder if there aren't other athletes around the world who, who are in the same boat that I'm in now with diabetes. So I think that's, that's the first point. The second point is that we eat far too much carbohydrate. Even if you're training for the Ironman, you do not need to eat what I said, 600 grams of carbohydrate a day. You absolutely don't need that. Mm. And I, the reason you don't need it is because so much of the activity you're doing is at low intensity and you can burn fat during that activity. I absolutely understand that there are moments in training and in racing when you probably need to burn carbohydrates. But I suspect that you can get enough carbohydrate from 200 or 300 grams carbohydrate maximum a day will give you all the carbohydrates you need for those those moments of explosive exercise. Mm. 
So the question about is there enough evidence, scientific evidence? No, absolutely there isn't. And part of the problem is no one has ever looked at people who've adapted for six months to a year on the diet. And so what we've got is anecdotes, but there are some incredibly powerful anecdotes out there. And my great friend, Donal O'Neill, who's just produced the video called Serial Killers, was in America a few weeks ago with the premiers. And, and he said the number of elite athletes in American sports who are turning to this diet is astonishing. And the next movie he's going to make is on this diet being used by elite athletes. Mm. Now, I'm not suggesting they're all Ironman athletes or marathon runners, but across the board, there are more and more people adopting this diet and finding it helpful. I saw yesterday the top Australian rules football player admitted he's on the diet. Now, that's an explosive sport. Mm. It combines endurance and explosiveness, and and the best player is, is on the diet. Mm. So that's the first point. The second point is that the research that has been done on high-fat diets actually is, it's not suggesting that it doesn't work. It just didn't make, it didn't make you better than high-carbohydrate diets. Mm. But those are all short-term studies, and they're not, not done on insulin-resistant athletes. They're done on probably highly carbohydrate-tolerant athletes who can probably eat anything. So, so that would be my third point, that if you're what we call metabolically flexible, in other words, you can burn fat or you can burn carbohydrate with no consequence to your health or to your performance, then it doesn't matter what you eat. You can eat 600 grams of carbohydrate a day. I still think you'd be better off not eating 600 grams of carbohydrate a day, but you could do it. But if you're not metabolically flexible, and, and those are the guys who are not like you, they're the guys like me who are doing a 16-hour Ironman or a 17-hour Ironman, and who've got 20% body fat or 30% body fat. And those are the people we're appealing to because I promise you, if they were just to change their diet and lose 10 or 15 or 20 kilograms, their performance would shoot up. And, and the reason why they don't understand is because if you're training three, four, five hours a day, you will burn off all the excess carbohydrate. And so you won't be as fat as you might be if you weren't doing your five hours of exercise. But by simply going on a high-fat diet, you don't need to burn up that excess carbohydrate to stay thin. You will become thin because you're not eating excess carbohydrate. You'll become thin and performance will go up. I mean, there was one guy who who we helped who improved his time in a 56-kilometer, 35-mile race by three hours. He was almost the last finisher for one year. Mm. He, he was 7,600. The next year came 200. He dropped his time by three hours. He was a, a good athlete with good genes who was just getting fatter and fatter and fatter from all the carbohydrate. And as soon as he cut his carbs, he could now start training properly for whatever reason, better nutrition. He could train further, and he's now expressing his ability. And he's now winning races over five kilometers, mm. whereas before he was the guy coming last. <laughs> nice. so, yeah, so that's, and, and the key is it's, it's, it's completely explicable because he has a guy who's totally carbohydrate intolerant. And he's been told by this clever Dr. Nox that you must eat carbohydrates to run fast, and he believes it. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and, and again, my point is, people like yourself, elite athletes like yourself, 
you're probably so carbohydrate tolerant that you can eat anything you like and it won't make a difference. But, but the average Ironman who's struggling through his six-hour marathon at the finish and is carrying, even if he's carrying two kilograms or three kilograms too much, if he were to change his diet and cut out all the carbs, which he doesn't need, because there's no question that you, Jeff Volek is showing that you can burn up to 1.6 grams of fat a minute. Now, 1.6 grams of fat per minute allows you to run a 2.30 marathon just on burning fat. Mm, mm. And he's showing in the laboratory that that's what you can do. And if you look at law of running, there's this lovely calculation on Mark Allen because I could never understand how could Mark Allen run a 2.30 marathon like yourself at the end of, a, at the end of an Ironman. And the, cal- the calculation showed he had to be burning fat at 1.5 grams per minute. And in our laboratory, we'd only ever measured 0.9 grams per minute. Mm. So we said, well, it's impossible. There's something wrong with him. And the answer is you can burn 1.5 grams a minute and you can run a 2.30 marathon at the end of an Ironman, if you, but only, only, only if you can burn fat at 1.5 grams per minute. And now we've got data showing that that is possible in highly fat-adapted athletes. Mm. So, so to make my point, I'm not suggesting that elite athletes want to fat adapt and do that. But the point is the guy running a six-hour marathon, he's burning fat so slowly that he could easily cover the distance just burning fat. He does not need one gram of carbohydrate for the run or perhaps even for the whole race. Mm. He could just do it on fat. So just, just to rewind to your point there about, you know, talking about the, those that fall in the group, um, you know, insulin resistance, and, and they're the real risk factors, is that simply a case of going along to your GP and, and getting tested? Uh, or, or how do you know if you're going to fall into that group other than looking at people's body composition and having some pretty strong <laughs> suspicions about it? Uh, is there anything people who think they fall into that category can do? I think that's a very good idea. And what I would do is the start would be measuring your fasting insulin and fasting glucose. And the first sign that you got, you're in trouble is that your insulin starts to rise. And we measure on fasting conditions. So as your fasting insulin rises, that tells us that your body's struggling to regulate your carbohydrates. It's struggling to get glucose out of the bloodstream. The next thing that happens is the glucose rises as well. Fasting glucose rises. And before that, actually, your postprandial glucose, in other words, when you eat, your glucose goes too high. But, but so that so that would be the first one. The fasting insulin is, is absolutely really imperative to measure and, and the fasting glucose. Then the next variable is called the glycated hemoglobin or the HbA1c. And if you're an elite athlete, it really shouldn't be below above 5.2, 5.3. Because if it's more than that, that tells me you're insulin resistant and your carbohydrate intake is too high. Once it goes above 5.5%, you're on the way. You will, in my view, develop pre-diabetes, diabetes later on. And once the value is over six, you're in you're in trouble because now at six point five, you actually have frank diabetes. Mm. So a value between five point five and six is a warning that your diet is too full of carbohydrates, and you're you're pre-diabetic, and you will develop diabetes if you continue to eat that high carbohydrate diet for another ten or fifteen or twenty years. So I, I think that the HbA1c is a really good measurement, and I think all elite athletes, sorry, all athletes doing the Ironman who are training a lot and eating a lot of carbohydrates should just measure it. And if it's above 5.5, even if it's above 5.3, with all that exercise, you should be not be above 5. You should mm-hmm. be 5 or below. So if it's below 5.2, 5.3, that tells me 
your body's struggling to metabolize all that carbohydrate, so you really don't need it. Mm. You could comfortably cut a few hundred grams a day of, of carbohydrate out of your diet, and it will your health will improve, and I would guess your performance will also improve. But if your values, values below five, eat what you like. You're fantastic. You're going to live forever. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, and if, if we can, I know we've only got a few minutes left, but in terms of practicalities, for people that are, are sort of trying to go down this path already, so they've listened, maybe listened to stuff that you've said or other people have said about um, trying to go down this high-fat, low-carb um, path, what sort of practical things can you suggest in terms of what they could be doing in terms of their training and their racing in terms of what they would fuel themselves um, when they're out there and perhaps when they should fuel it so should they be going out in a fasting state and just going out there and training and just having something after a few hours and and trucking along or, or is yeah. there any methods that, that can perhaps speed up the adaptation and, and some practical advice you can give people yeah I think what's helpful to understand is that if you're a high-carbohydrate athlete, your metabolism is totally different from if you're a high-fat athlete. If you're a high-carbohydrate athlete, every few hours you're taking in carbohydrate to fuel the activity over the next few hours. And if you are exercising and in this high-carbohydrate state, you really don't access fat very well, particularly if you're insulin-resistant. So you're always eating carbohydrates during the day. So every three hours, you're getting hungry and wanting to eat more. And when you get on the bike or in the run, in the Ironman, you'll have to respond exactly the same way. You have to take carbohydrate regularly because that's what your metabolism is designed and that's the way your brain sees it. Once you start reducing your carbohydrates and increasing your fat intake, your metabolism changes completely. And now you start to burn only fat from your subcutaneous tissues and your deep body tissues. And there's so much fat available that there's no reason why you should eat during training or even racing. Other than because it's a nine-hour event, you miss lunch and you miss supper. So you stop and have lunch somewhere and you stop and have <laughs> Yeah, pull over and <laughs> that, station. That, you understand. You understand the analogy? Yeah. The idea that you have to eat every half hour because you're exercising is completely wrong. And it's completely based on the carbohydrate model because if, it's, if all you're burning is carbohydrate, of course you have to do that. But the more carbohydrate you take in, the less fat you can burn. Mm. So you have to, one has to get completely out of that model and move into the high-fat model where you eat infrequently. So most of us on high-fat diets are eating every six to eight hours. And so when we go out and exercise, we don't expect to eat for the next six hours anyway. So, so why would you want to eat? You only eat at the next meal, which might be lunch or dinner. Mm. And the idea that you have to keep snacking is, is completely foreign because there's no biological need to keep snacking when you're exercising because you've got all this energy if you can just burn the fat. Mm. So that, that's what we try to encourage endurance athletes to do if they become fat adapted is just to go out there and as if they were, it's a normal day. And if you're going to exercise for six hours, why would you need to eat? Now, I understand that some people say, well, your blood glucose is going to fall. But that's not necessarily so. If you've adapted the liver very well, it'll produce all the glucose you need to maintain your blood glucose concentration. And if you want to find that out, you can, of course, take a glucometer and measure your glucose after three or four hours. And if it is falling, okay, fine, then you do need some glucose. But if it's not, then then you're in a metabolically good state. 
So, to summarize, if you're carbohydrate adapted, you have to do exactly what Gatorade tells you. You have to take lots of carbohydrate and eat frequently. And I know that there are some elite triathletes who take in 90 grams of carbohydrate an hour, which to me is utter madness, but that's what they believe helps and that's good for them. Mm. If you're fat adapted, we just tell people, take fat with you. Take some nuts and some cheese and some pemmican, mm. which is a form of fat and fat and protein mixed, fat and meat mixed, or other high-fat, high high-protein foods like milk, drink milk, or coconut oil, and so on. And it's, it's very foreign, but what we're saying is you snack during exercise on the same foods that you snack on during your normal daily daily existence. Mm. So if you're, carb, if you're on the carbs, you eat the carbs. If you're on the fat, you eat the fat. It, it's as simple as that. Yeah. Having said that, sorry, <laughs> having said that, I must make one qualification. I have a lot of some elite athletes have written to me and they said they've adapted very well to the start. However, they do perform better if they take a little more carbohydrate the day before. In other words, they do a very, very small carbo-loading with, say, 200 grams of carbohydrate. That's all, which mm. is almost nothing. Mm. And then during the race, they will take some carbohydrate mm. uh, to, to taste, in a sense. The, body will, the brain will say, I need carbohydrate, and they will take it. But it's nowhere near the 90 grams an hour. It's, it's maybe 25 grams an hour maximum. Mm. So that they are taking a bit of carbohydrate, but it's not enough to impact on their fat metabolism. And that's one of the keys. We discovered some old research, and we're, we're, we're trying to repeat it, where once you become fat adapted, when you take carbohydrate, it doesn't impair your fat metabolism. You either store it or you burn it quickly, but you, it doesn't completely inhibit fat metabolism. Mm. If you're carbohydrate adapted and you take carbohydrate, it completely shuts off fat metabolism. So one of the subtle adaptations which, of which people haven't really thought about enough is that when you become fat adapted, your carbohydrate metabolism is totally altered. And so if you do take in carbohydrate, so let's take the day before you take your fat adapted, you take in the 200 grams of carbohydrate. All that happens is that 200 grams goes straight into your muscle and your liver and you continue to burn fat during the day. If you're carbohydrate adapted and you take carbohydrates, you will store it, but you'll continue to burn carbohydrates, not fat. It'll inhibit your fat oxidation. So you will burn up a large proportion of the carbohydrate you took in because you have to. You have to finish it off. Whereas if you're fat adapted, you don't because you fill up your stores, but you continue to burn fat. Mm. So when you start the race, you've got all the carbohydrate you ingested the day before, and you've also got the capacity to continue burning fat. You didn't use it up. You didn't use any of that excess carbohydrate the day before to, to burn it as carbohydrate. So that is that's why fat adapted athletes can benefit from only 200 grams of carbohydrate the day before a race, whereas a carbohydrate adapted athlete might need to take 600 grams, mm -hmm. because of the 600 grams he takes in, only 300 is going to be stored in his muscles. The other 300 is going to burn during the day just to keep living. It's mm. brilliant stuff. So if, if people want to you know follow you or find out um, you know just just more on these these topics. Have you got any sort of recommended places where they should go, whether there's websites, whether there's Twitter feeds, whether you've obviously got your, your books, Challenging Belief, and, and your other books, but, but where are the best places for people to find good, credible um, you know, stuff that's been researched rather than just going out on the latest fad? Um, yeah. what's, what's your advice around Absolutely. that area? Absolutely. So the, 
the real authority on high fat diets is a chap called Jeff Volek, and he's from the University of Cincinnati, and he was funded by Robert Atkins from an early day in the early 200s, and he has relentlessly and remorselessly researched high fat diets. He understands high fat diets better than anyone else in the whole world. Mm. And so anything that Jeff Volek writes or you on Twitter or no, no, he's not on Twitter. Sorry. On, on, on the internet, YouTube, watch what he says because he has the experience and he's written a book, the art and science of low carb performance. And that's a book that I would suggest as well. Mm. And I think that if you start there, if you're an athlete and you start there, you're getting hard, solid facts and hard, solid science. And there's no speculation about him. And he's not he's exactly like me. He's never going to claim that every athlete in the world is going to benefit from this. But he's currently working with some of the best athletes and some of the best endurance athletes in the world. And they've come to him because they understand why he's so good. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the first place. And I think once you get into Jeff Olick, you'll see he'll lead you elsewhere. Mm-hmm. I have a Twitter feed at, at Prof Tim Noakes. Mm-hmm. I'll repeat that, at Prof Tim Noakes. I focus more on the medical aspects, the health aspects of this diet, and, and rather less on the performance. Mm. Because as I've indicated, there, there are just too few studies, really, on performance. And those that have been done, uh, Jeff Ehrlich has done them, and he is doing some really good studies at this time. And I'm sure we'll be hearing about them in due course. Mm. But I, but I, you know, let's start simple. Go go and read Jeff Volek, and you'll soon realise that there's there's a lot of really good evidence and a lot of really good research on on low low carbohydrate diets. Very good. And guys, I really would endorse um, Challenging Beliefs, um, Memoirs of a Career by Tim. It's uh, it's a great book that I really thoroughly enjoyed and it really goes into a lot of those topics we've discussed today in a bit more detail and you can really get your teeth into it. So thank you so much. I know you do quite a few interviews, so we really appreciate um, you giving up so much of your time. And uh, we've had lots of requests from from listeners to get you on the show, so we're stoked to, stoked to have you here. Thanks, John. Thank you very much for a, for a wonderful interview. I really appreciate the great questions and the way you conducted it. It was just fantastic to be with you. And good luck in your all your performances and good luck to the All Blacks and good luck to the, the Black Caps in the cricket. I'm sure you guys will come back very quickly. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Yeah. John Boo, your thoughts? Outstanding. Mm. I, what, I, what I tried to do during that interview, as you probably will have noticed, is I really tried to break it into a couple of different parts and I really tried to avoid going down the high fat low carb for too long because I know that that's his current uh, topic of um, yep. preference. Well, he's got so much knowledge you kind of want to tap into a bit of everything don't you? Yeah, yeah. And, and I was really keen to you know that's all he's sort of known for at the moment is uh, going on and on about high fat low carb which is I think fascinating stuff but I really wanted to get his thoughts on on running. I thought he made some uh, some useful insights into into that, especially around uh, cadence. cadence and uh, the run walk and um, how to actually run fast. You know, becoming more explosive. And we talked a bit about that last week with with the Philinator. You know, doing doing some drills, um, doing some plyometrics and yeah. stuff. And so often we totally people are totally ignore drills. They just think oh, it's a it's a bit of a filler. You know, just uh, to add some time into your training session, make it a bit more interesting. But it has got a real benefit to to what you're doing so um overall you know it's, it's some someone even wanted to get on the show for ages and ages and how to me how to me to get him 
on and we finally did. And then I couldn't make it. And then you couldn't make it. <laughs> but it's okay. You did a good job. So it was all good. Bevan, do you have any uh, passing thoughts on, on any of the topics? Uh, no, I, th- I thought he's just, he's got really interesting. And so I love it that he always goes back to science as well. You know, like he, he's just someone who obviously spends his life thinking about this stuff, you know, and mm. obviously got a very intelligent man and has this way of thinking that can really kind of break down these topics in really interesting ways. And, and the good thing about a guy like Noakes is he's not stuck on an idea. Mm. And you get a lot of these guys who promote an idea and they just want to show the world, they can only see the world in the way they see the idea. Whereas he is an evolutionary thinker. He's always basically going, okay, well, what's science saying? And, and you know, as we as we learn more about our knowledge, what what's the best message I can put out there? And he's not someone, you know, like he, he does say, I've got things wrong in my book. And so that, that's what you want from people who can be an influence is that they're not just stuck in one way. Because mm. often what happens is people who get stuck in one way make money from that one way. Mm. And so they're kind of, get caught up in stucking in that way whereas he doesn't have that so yeah totally respect the guy's legend um, anything that surprised you not really I was just I just had something else to think I th- and that was the other point I was going to make is he's, he's really had to fight pretty hard for his his beliefs and his findings and really he's got a real gripe with um, with marketing and with the big companies and yeah. that's a big big part of his his uh, his book challenging beliefs and he's had to fight bloody hard you know he could put it quite easily gone well, I've presented my research blah 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 that's uh, yeah. you know but he's had to go no bugger this I'm presenting my research now I'm going to fight to actually promote what I've done and actually try to instigate a little bit of change and he and he's successfully done that in terms of um, well he's always at the forefront isn't he that's yeah. the thing about him like if the topics he's kind of really brought to the consciousness of, of the sporting community have been very much he's kind of the, the leader who or or, or one of the first people he obviously realizes he has influences and he obviously picks his, his subjects carefully but mm. he you know he he is the guy who kind of brings up the topic before or maybe everyone agrees and then it, mm. because he's come from a science-based background then as more science comes forward it's, it kind of justifies the way he's thought so no great interview yes all good okay our sponsor john extreme endurance your lactic buffer and Often when people are taking supplements, they're always, you know, worried about, especially these days, and uh, with, with IT with WTC, you know, all all of all us age groupers are actually in the drug testing pool. Um, whether you know it or you don't, if you're going to Kona, uh, you, there's a chance that you, you potentially could be could be tested. You know what's really hard about supplements? I remember when we did Rote because we we raced Rote as pros, and at mm. that time Challenge decided they were going to test every pro for. Mm. Um, drugs, which was a bit of a waste of money on us, because, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> but you know that's the thing. How do they know? And I remember at the time I was using quinine sulfate, mm-hmm. and, and and I was thinking, well, maybe that's an illegal drug. I wasn't sure. You know, mm. was, I'd used it in races before, and I was like, oh. Well. And uh, and for the life of me, I couldn't find anywhere that would tell me what was banned and what was not banned. It was actually like I spent like three or four hours on the internet just trying to figure out, well, how can I find out what mm. what is what I am able to use and if you're involved in a high performance program then you get some help around that but if you're yeah. a proper high performance athlete but, but, age but for us, no for age groupers yeah. we're not and so I guess my, my point here is with Extreme Endurance uh, they have received the tick from the informed choice and informed sport and they basically have independent an independent company testing their products to basically say these products do not have any um, any 
banned substances in them so you can feel safe that you can actually take them and should you go and get uh, a test then it's it's not the extreme endurance uh, that you need to be worried about. Uh, they, what do they say here, they've got uh, since 2002 they've had over 5,000 sample tests done each year so it's ISO certified so they're basically ticking all the boxes to make sure that you guys can have the reassurance that you're not taking something that is on the banned list and you're not being uh, not basically doing a lance yeah so we know all the benefits of extreme endurance you know it's going to reduce your muscle soreness going to enhance your performance and if you want to get any get on xendurance.com remember to use the code imtalk5 kiwis and aussies if you want to get it uh, go to coach john newsome.com and i've got a little shop page on there you can order off as well so check it out xendurance.com okay guys so uh sponsors coffeesofway.com uh get on get the the french press athlinks.com uh, what's happened in australia extreme endurance your lactic buffer trainerroad.com your, your cycling aid okay john Bose, so uh we've got the we're selling a book and we've got only about two or three weeks to go on that so if you want to get the the ebook you go to www.imtalk.me and it'll be in the show notes 30 dollars goes put you in the draw to win the ultimate Kona trip, which we're drawing on the 20th of May. Mm-hmm. So it's going to rock and roll. So you need to kind of be bought it before the 13th of May is, is when we're closing off entries to buy the book. And then what we'll do is we'll put all the names on the website you can download. So then when we draw it, you can see what your number is. Then from there, it's pretty much all you need to know. But each time you buy a book, you get go. You also get an I Am Talk nickname. And John's going to do his names this week. You can buy as many as you like. And remember, we've got our I Am Talk uh, bike jerseys and I Am Talk shirts on sale as well at the moment. And they are only going to be on sale for a couple more weeks. So get nice. on if you want to get that. Jack Lynch. Cousteau, because in his Athlinks profile, he's got a big pair of bloody goggles on his face. So I was thinking Jacques Cousteau, Jack Lynch. Uh, ben Sales, I was thinking Sale, you know, million, nice. do- million dollar man. Nice. Uh, Andy Phillips, Professor Uber. Nice. Uh, Stuart Milne, he's had a nickname for ages, Age of Danger. Nice, I like that. William Kelsey, cheers. Cheers, why? Kelsey Grammar. Oh, nice. Yeah. Cheers. Uh, cheers, ears. James Duveen, the ultimate warrior. In tribute to him, oh, the great cool. passing last week. That so was he, a oh, sad. He was coming across, James coming, his athletics picture, coming across the finish line, doing the old uh, bicep. Uh, do you ever, do you ever just waste time on the internet? Sorry? Oh, never. I'll never do that. Do you ever, do you ever go down like a rabbit hole of, because occasionally, once every like six months, I'll go down a rabbit hole of professional wrestling on YouTube. Yeah. And you can get, you can lose a day. No. You can wake up and go, where'd that day in my no, life? I can't say I've done that. <laughs> so, uh, Ian Moore, Digler. Because he went on to... Yeah, we, he looked like a porn star on his Athlinks photo, didn't he? So we went Dirk Diggler. Uh, T.I. Besant, Angry Bird. Nice. Why? Pheasant. Pheasant. Pheasant or Besant sounds like pheasant. Yeah. The bird. Angry, Angry bird. bird. Nice. Uh, Thomas Con- Connolly was Hog Butcher from a couple of weeks ago. Neil Mignon, uh, Dr. Danger. Dr. Bevan, Danger. Bevan did that one. Yeah. So there you go. That's this week's. Okay, so there you go. If, okay, once again, you've got your book. You've only a few more weeks to go, and then you'll know the winner by the 20th of May. Okay, guys, uh, that's pretty much this week's show. John, any goss? Um, no, I'm, I'm going up to Kaiteri today. Oh, yeah, that worked yep. out well for you, didn't it? It did. Yeah. I'm going to have a few days up in Kaiteri. Blinders had the kids up there for a few days, and I'm going up to join them today. Oh, how long are you up there for? Tuesday to Sunday. You're flying, you're not biking. I'm flying. Yeah. <laughs> Weak. Yeah. You're weakening. Yeah. I'm a car, car club member now. It's just, <laughs> nice. it's just the way that I roll, you know? <laughs> you might have gone to that next level. You never go back. I get a free lunch on the way. <laughs> you, you get free so lunch. Airfare cost me, I think, 79 bucks, 80 bucks, something. Yeah, free lunch. Free lunch. Go hang out at the, at the, the car club. You fly club home, let the kids drive home. Yeah. <laughs> 
There you okay. go. And I'm in Auckland doing my thing. So anyway, guys, we're back to normal next week. So uh, what is it? Iron Russ. I'm in. Don't train hard. Train smart. Kia kaha. kaha.